So since the beginning of Advent, if you've been hanging with us, you know that we have been talking about the gospel and what it's not and what it is. And so we've said that the gospel is not just the good news that God and through Christ Jesus is making us new, but instead it's bigger. It's the good news that God and through Christ Jesus is even right now in this very moment in the process of making all things new. And that's a process that as we've learned, he's going to bring to an end. He's going to complete the process upon his return. But in between that day and this day, here's what he wants to do. He wants to employ us in the process. He wants us to learn how to become agents of renewal as we ourselves bring our sin and selves to Jesus and are renewed. But then if by the power of God's spirit, in obedience to his word and in living life and community with one another, we learn how progressively to wake up every day and to say something very contrary to our nature. To say, okay, Lord, so here's the deal, as difficult as this is for me, as contrary to my nature as this is, today I'm going to offer me, not to me, and not to this other person, and not to these other things, but I'm going to offer me to you. So, here's the question. How do you want to use me today as your agent of renewal in my family and in the place that I work and where I go to school and in this community and in this city and in the world and so forth? How can I die to me and to all the other missions that consume me and that will die with me, if you think about it, so that I can take my itty-bitty here today, gone tomorrow, leave it all behind when I die life and invest it in the single greatest cause that ever was and ever will be, and frankly, that in the end matters for forever. It's like I'm converting my life into something that for forever makes a difference. So what we've been talking about is the fact that, okay, that's our calling, but of late what we've been talking about, the fact is that that's not our nature. It's not mine. It's not yours. Like, we don't naturally get up and go, yeah, how can I live for someone other than me? We don't. We get up and go, how can I get everybody to live for me, including God? Don't we? So then what needs to happen in here for God's renewing activity then to start happening out here? That's mostly what we've been talking about, and we learned three things thus far. So from Mary and Joseph, we learned, for example, that we've got to finally make a once and for all kind of value judgment that we intuitively already understand, but I mean, we really need to seriously reckon with which is what. It requires us to put ourselves and our absolutely everything on one side of a great big imaginary scale. And then God and His mission to renew absolutely everything on the other side of this great big imaginary scale. And then to, to take our hands away from our eyes and to unstop our ears and to take deeply into our heart in a transformational kind of way the fact that the God side of the scale comes crashing into the earth. Why? Because it is infinitely more valuable and eternal. I mean, there's just no other way it could possibly be. And that's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing. It presents to us an opportunity to have meaning, to have purpose, to find satisfaction, to, to, to actually gain all the things that we're trying to find, but to find it in the one and in the mission of the one where alone it can be found. So that's the first thing. We've got to have this value judgment in which we reckon with the fact and then get up every day and re-reckon with the fact because we've got to re-reckon with it every day kind of folks, okay? That God's mission to renew absolutely everything is worth our absolutely everything. But last week, from John the Baptist, we learned that we also need to really reckon with and then every day get up and deal with again who we are ready not. That was the key word. Who we're not. 
as in we are not God. And what that means, practically speaking, is we're not only not the center of the universe, we're not even the center of our own universe, and that too is good. Why? Because we make terribly disappointing little gods. We just, we do. And if all we do is live for ourselves and try to get everybody else to live for us, including God, and make Him our servant, and all of those employ Him in our plans, we're going to get to the end of our life and say, what have we done? And for all that we've done, we will not have done much. So, value judgment, number one, who we are not, as in we're not God, and He is, number two, but then the third thing that we've seen, and we learned this from John the Baptist as well last week, we need to know who we are, and every day we need to get up and go, here's who I am, here's the value, here's who I'm not, but here's who I am, I am the renewing agent of the living God, I am the one sent out and commissioned by Him in community with His people to go out and to bring renewal through the way that I live and through the words that I say to my family and to the place where I work and to the place I go to school and to the community and to the city and to the world, and I'm not going to do it perfectly, and all of that is forgiven in Christ, but my goodness, I have a mission, and it matters. That's who I am. Okay, so as we pick up our study today, we're going to learn two more things from John the Baptist. So today we're going to see that living as the renewing agents of God requires us also to know who Jesus is and just how unique in all the universe He is and to let that have its impact on us. And then, lastly... It requires us to take deeply into our hearts and to allow these things to transform us just how much God, our Heavenly Father, really does love us. Because here's the deal. Almighty God, John 3.16, so loved that He gave what? Or really, who? Listen to the language, because I'm going to show you where it comes from. And it's not John 3.16. That's borrowed. God so loved that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, and then personalized that because He did that to remove every barrier and every obstacle that you have built and that I have built that stand between us. He did that so that He could have you. So with that in mind, we pick up our study in John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist kind of answers the first question that we're dealing with, which is the who is Jesus question, right out of the gate. We read this. It says that John the Baptist, who, as we saw last week, had this ginormous ministry. It's south of the Dead Sea. It's out in the Judean wilderness. It's in the middle of nowhere, okay, and yet thousands of people are coming to see him. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's in the midst of a church service, and then he sees Jesus. It says John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. He stops the service. He points at Jesus, and listen to what he says. He says, behold, he's saying, look, and then he says, the lamb of who? Because I think this is really the key the Lamb of God, as opposed to, let's say that I lived back then, the Lamb of Tom that he found out on his farm, you know, because, you know, I went out onto my farm and I kind of sifted through all of my lambs and I I found the one that is the most perfect and the most spotless and the most innocent, if you will, and then I gathered up that lamb because this is what they did in those days, and then I took that lamb very carefully, hoping that nothing happened to it, and I brought it to the temple and I gave it to the priest, and then the priest took the perfect, spotless, innocent lamb and sacrificed it in my place, the idea being that I'm not perfect, that I'm not spotless, that I'm not innocent. 
But that little lamb is. And since I can't cure my condition, I need somebody, something that is innocent and spotless and perfect to cover at the expense of its life my sin with its blood. Get the idea? That's the way that it worked with these guys and with that sacrificial system. They had an understanding of that. But that's not the kind of lamb that John says. He doesn't describe it that way because if you think about it, that, that's a lamb that I've taken and I've provided to God. John says, when he points at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, which is to say the perfect, the spotless, the innocent Lamb that God provides to me. And who does what no other Lamb could ever do, who truly, who authentically, who everlastingly, who once and for all takes away the sin of the world, or at least when you study the word world and how John uses it in his gospel, takes away for forever the sin of all those in the world who claim the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who is Christ as the covering for their sin. And I think it's important for you to realize, you know, that these people that John's talking to in the first century out in the Judean wilderness would have heard this statement, behold the Lamb of God, very differently than we hear it today. I mean, they would have heard it differently because, of course, they had a greater understanding of that sacrificial system. So they would have understood lamb, perfect, innocent, substituted for the guilty. They had all of these categories far more clearly defined than we do by means of that practice. But they would have heard it very differently too because when he said, behold the Lamb of God, they would have immediately recognized within that the answer to a question that had been open for ages and generations, a question that runs all the way back into the book of Genesis, a question that one of the patriarchs of their people, Isaac, asked the patriarch of their people, his father Abraham, in a story that is helpful not only in understanding what is John saying when he says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but is even, I think, more helpful in understanding just how great the Father's love is for us. Because in this story, you have a picture of the Father, and you have a picture of Christ, and you have a picture of what the Lord does and of what He gave for you. So I want to look at that story, because that's a story their minds would have run to. We find it in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1 where we read that after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham is all jacked, says, here I am. He's excited now, but just for the moment. Because God then said, and here comes the test, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. And listen to the language. I want you to take your son, your only son. Sound familiar? But in this case, Isaac whom you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah, to this mountain range where the city of Jerusalem later in history would be built. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut his throat. I want you to pour out all of his blood. And then I want you to sacrifice him on an altar and completely consume his body in flame. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah and cut his throat, <laughs> offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And 
I don't know if you've ever studied through the life of Abraham, but if not, let me just tell you, there is absolutely not one thing in the life of Abraham that prepares you for the trauma of that. Like, you do not see this coming. There's just no way. And in fact, when you, when you read this statement, having traveled through the life of, of this man leading up to this statement, what you really want to do is you want to find a way to jump into the Bible somehow and get between God and Abraham and put Isaac behind Abraham and to say, no, you can't do this. Like, you can't do this with anyone's child. You certainly, however, cannot do this with Isaac. And for lots of reasons, my goodness, Abraham waited his whole life in good grief. He's really old for the birth of this son. He's a hundred. Think about that. When this son finally arrives... And his wife, who had been barren all of their life. So you can imagine the trauma of all of that. Some of you don't have to imagine it. And now is way past menopause. Game over, procreationally speaking. Okay, is 90 when this child is born. And it's only because he's supernaturally conceived. So God comes and announces in advance to his parents, hey, in about a year, yeah, you're going to have a child. Well, I'm sure that was news to this couple. And then they did. And the joy associated with the birth of this child was so significant that it went back through all of those decades and it swallowed up all of the pain and all of the sorrow in a joy that was so significant that they literally named him laughter. That's what Isaac means. It's profound and more than that. Isaac is the son of promise. And here's what that means. God came to Abraham and he said, listen, I'm going to bring into the world a Savior who by his blood will cover over the sins of all those who claim that blood as the covering for their sin. A Savior, the Lamb. It's singular, incidentally. And I'm going to bring this Savior into the world through the physical lineage, through the descendants of this child that I'm going to give to you, of this son named Isaac, who at this point in the narrative, when God comes to him and says, hey, you know what I'm thinking? Maybe this would be a good idea. Go to Moriah, offer him as a burnt offering. Okay, Isaac's about 15 years old. He's never been married. He has no kids. So there are no physical descendants. So therefore, then if you kill Isaac, what happens to the hope of the world? Think about that. So there's a little bit riding on this. And yet Abraham had made the value judgment. He had heard the thud of the scale. He had put his everything into this one side of the scale. Let me tell you what his absolutely everything was. This boy. That's it. Abraham knew who he was not, as in I'm not God and you are. And Abraham understood, I'm employed in your mission. Although I got to tell you, this seems to be kind of contrary to the mission. But what does he do? His obedience is immediate, and it is absolutely complete. Next verse, it says, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And Abraham, now notice this, cut the wood for the burnt offering himself. Why does he cut the wood? 
because he knows he's going to the mountain region of Moriah, got that, but he doesn't know where in the mountain region of Moriah God's going to point out and go, that's the place of the sacrifice, and he doesn't know if once he gets up the hill to the place of the sacrifice that there will be sufficient wood by which he could then perform the sacrifice. So what is Abraham doing? He's removing absolutely every possible obstacle between him and obedience to the Lord. He is going to do this. That's the point. He's resolved. It's done. So then his son, though his son is still living at this point in the story, is as good as dead to him as soon as the Lord comes to him with this commandment, which is significant. Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering himself. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, so then how long has the supernaturally conceived one and only son of the father whose birth was announced in advance by heaven to his earthly parents and in whom is the hope of the world, I mean, if you think about it, been dead to his father three days. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then at least in my mind, he stopped on the path and he said, guys, let's just stop here for a second because I don't, I, don't, I don't feel very good. And he just walked off the path, leaving them behind and went about a hundred yards off to have a total meltdown and literally to be sick because he's a person. <laughs> not a story in a book. He's a father with a one and only waited for all my life son. And after regaining his composure then, I think he came back. And he said to his young men, and this is huge, he says, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay here with the donkey. And I want you guys to be around when the deal goes down. That, that might be a problem, and I'm removing all obstacles. And here's what's going to happen. I and the boy will go over there, up to that place, I know where it is now, and we will worship, and then what? And then we will come back again to you. That's the idea. I, of course, Abraham's saying, you know, we'll look pretty much like this. My son will be in an urn. Because here's what a burnt offering involves. Cutthroat, bled out, consumed body. Okay, that's not at all what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, here, here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to stay here. I and my son are going to go up there. And I'm going to build an altar. And I'm going to lay him down on top of the altar. And I'm going to cut his throat. And I'm going to offer him as a burnt offering. Completely holy and thoroughly. And then on the backside of that, God, because he must do this, it's the only way that he can keep his promise. For he has promised to bring a Savior into the world through the lineage of this boy who has no descendants at this point. God is going to raise him up from the ashes. He's going to raise him from the dead, and then we will return to you, and we'll be looking just like this. I 
Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and we will then come back to you looking like this. And now notice what he does. It says, and so then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on the shoulders of Isaac, his son. So what does that mean? That means that the supernaturally conceived one and only son of the father, whose birth was announced to his earthly parents in advance by heaven, in whom is the hope of the world in his day, is now going to carry the wood of sacrifice up the hill upon which he will be sacrificed. Good grief, this should sound familiar. It's remarkable, I mean, when you think about it. But why does he put the wood on his shoulder's son? Because this too is remarkable. Because Abraham is way past 100 at this point, and his son's 15. So guess who's stronger? Guess who's faster? Guess who has more endurance? I keep telling my son, if I make it to 115, then you'll be stronger than me. So, but think about that. That has implications for what happens. It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on the shoulders of Isaac, his one and only son, whom he had waited for all of his life and whom he named Laughter. And Abraham the father took in his hand the instruments of death, the fire and the knife. And so they went up the hill, both of them together, I think, in total silence. Until Isaac broke the silence and he said to his father, Abraham, my father, and Abraham, who I picture running about 10 yards ahead of his son so that he can't see that he's weeping, somehow choked out. Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, I have a question. And if you think about it, it's not just a question, it's the question. So here it is. <laughs> Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Which tells you, by the way, that Isaac knows what a burnt offering involves and that he doesn't know that he's the offering. This hasn't been communicated to him yet. That happens in just a second. But notice the response of Abraham because it's profound and it reverberates through the generations and ages until the Judean wilderness and John the Baptist. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so... They went on up the hill, both of them together, and when they came to the place of which God had told Abraham, Abraham built the altar there by gathering up these, these uncut stones and, and forming the altar, and, and then he laid the wood in order on top of those stones, and then Abraham told Isaac who the sacrifice was going to be. And then Isaac said... <laughs> That absolutely makes no sense at all. That's, that's, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. I, I think we need to hang on a second. I mean, well, wait a minute, because I'm like the hope of the world. Like, you know, I, are you, you know, Dad, listen, I, I know that you're getting a little bit older, and, and, you know, I've noticed that you become a bit forgetful, and maybe your hearing isn't as good as it used to be. And so I'm thinking maybe you misheard this. Maybe you misread this. Maybe this is the first and most obvious sign of senility. This is crazy. How could this be the purpose of God? I mean, first of all, what kind of a God would ask for this? 
would sacrifice a one and only son. And what happens to the Savior when I'm gone? And so Abraham grabs his son, but his son is stronger. And so he wrestles free, and Abraham runs after his son, but his son is faster. And he runs away, and he goes back to the servants down the hill, and he says, guys, my dad's lost his mind, and you've got to keep me from him. He wants to sacrifice me on that altar. It's not what he does. What he does instead is he believes his father's promise that God will raise him from the dead And he willingly lays down his life on the wood that he carried up the hill. Listen to what it says. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told Abraham, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on top of the altar in order. And and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his trembling hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham, far less enthusiastically, said, here I am. And the angel, thank goodness, said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God and that his mission of renewing absolutely everything, yeah, like you get that it's worth your absolutely everything. That you understand profoundly in a way that shows up in your life who you're not and who you are. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a what? Because it's not a lamb. Did you ever notice that? It matters. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went up, now he's enthusiastic, and took the ram And he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so then what that means, practically speaking, is that he received his son as if back from the dead, did he not? And on the third day. So Abraham then called the name of that place in this region of Moriah, where Jerusalem would later in history be built, the Lord not has provided, but the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, says Moses, the author of the story, on the mount of the Lord here in the region of Moriah, it shall be provided. What shall be provided? Well, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're like, well, who is that? Well, that's what these people for generations had been wondering until John the Baptist saw Jesus out in the Judean wilderness and said, it's him. The supernaturally conceived one and only son, not of Abraham, not of me, not of you, but of the greatest father ever, who incidentally enjoyed the most intimate relationship ever. The son of God, the father who is God, 
the supernaturally conceived son of the father, whose birth was announced, and we just went through Christmas, and advanced by angels to his earthly parents, who is himself the hope of the world, who exploded upon the scene in ministry as John John the Baptist identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect, spotless, innocent one who, in obedience to his father, carried the wood upon which he then willingly laid down his life up the hill of sacrifice and did it, unlike Isaac, knowing that he was the sacrifice and knowing that no one would stay his father's hand. Think about that. God gave his son in sacrifice for you. So that through faith in his life and death and burial and resurrection, my sins and yours, if we but claim it, could be covered over by his blood. We could be made new and then employed in the mission that in the end alone matters, which is his mission of renewing absolutely everything. As we do what? As we reckon with the fact that Okay, that mission is worth our everything. It just, it is. Oh, and and who are we? Well, we're not God. We're missionaries. We're employed in that renewing effort. As we come to realize that there is one Jesus, the Lamb of God, not like one of 483 million, but no, no, just one Lamb of God. And the message of the Lamb of God has been entrusted to us. And here's what happens when the love of God transforms us and all of these things begin to operate in our lives, we start waking up and going, feels a little odd, but I think today I'm going to offer myself, not to me, but to you. So, how do you want to use me? In my family, in my office, wherever, the city, the world, as your renewing agent. Can we make a plan for that? Because we make a strategy for everything else. Like, can, can we think long-term on that and be as strategic as we can about that? Lord, here I am, all of me. Take my itty-bitty life and do whatever you see fit to do in and through me. That's our challenge. And if you're challenged by that, work through the list. Have you heard the thud? Do you know who you're not? Have you reckoned with who you are? Have you realized who Jesus is and given yourself authentically to Him? And have you allowed the transforming love of God truly to transform you? Because when you do, then it starts showing up in surrender and in mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this precious man who is Abraham, whom the Scriptures give to us as the father of the faithful as the one who followed wherever you led, as the one who believed and the one who would come, as the one who recognized, Lord, the great value of you and of your mission, of who you are, of who he was, of who Christ is, and just how great your love is for him. Lord, may we be challenged in a wonderful, refreshing, kind of renewing sort of way by the example of this man. And may we learn to live more like him, or really, more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.